A reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good morning, friends. I'm sorry that I can't be there with you this morning. However, a positive COVID test has me here at home, uh, recovering. So, so far, not too bad. A little bit of snuffles, uh, a little bit under the weather, but doing well. So thank you for your prayers, and I hope to be back with you next Sunday. But this morning, what we're looking at is we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, which was just read for you. And friends, we need to remember as we read this, we can't just settle for the plausible when what we really need is the powerful. We can't settle just for that which is plausible when what we really need is that which is powerful. Now, Paul's continuing in this passage the same argument that we've been following the last two weeks. Uh, You remember that in the ancient world, there were sophists from the Greek world Sophia, and these were so-called purveyors of wisdom. They were skilled in speech and rhetoric. And these sophists were their generation's celebrity political pundits. Um, Pre-television and radio and internet, what did they do but travel from city to city hoping that their content would go viral? Uh, They would come to a city, they'd fill the amphitheater or the forum, and then for the edification and the entertainment of the crowd, they would pontificate on all the topics of the day, whether they were philosophical or political, religious or otherwise. Uh, They were always trying to get new subscribers. Uh, They wanted more followers. They were trying to generate an increasing number of likes and shares. And now, while some of these sophists were truly classically trained and knowledgeable, many had a reputation of being far more about entertainment than about edification. Uh, They were far more about the show than about the substance. And so as we've already heard Paul say that his presentation of the gospel clearly failed in the eyes of people that were used to listening to these sophists. Clearly, he wasn't as impressive as they were. And he says, my lack of pizzazz was actually on purpose. You remember that he he wrote for us back in in chapter 1, verse 7, you know, My speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So again, he didn't want their faith to rest upon eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of the power. He said, I didn't want to distract from the gospel itself by some plausible presentation, because the gospel itself has power. You see, Paul's emphasis was not on the plausible or the persuasive. His emphasis was on the power. And friends, the power is the good news of the cross. Now, as I said for preparing for today's sermon, uh, one of the commentators pointed out something that I had never noticed before. And it was, this obser- it was an observation that really made Paul's words here that we just read this morning all the more powerful of impact. Now, the church in Corinth was established, and we read about its establishment in Acts chapter 18. Now, Acts chapter 18, in fact, opens and it says, after this... Whoop, it says that I did not put Acts chapter 18 in my... Ah, there it is. I did put it in, and there it is. Uh-huh. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. 
Paul came to Corinth immediately after being in Athens. So the church in Corinth was founded immediately after Paul's visit to Athens. And what happened to Paul in Athens? What happened to Paul in Athens that might have influenced his ministry in Corinth? Well, in Athens, we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 18 through 21, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, uh, of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, but saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Sorry, I'm trying to run the technology while I preach. (laughs) Now the Areopagus, which literally means Mars Hill, was a place where the sophists, the scholars, and the philosophers in Athens spent all their time. They were debating, they were presenting, they were discussing. They were asking, what sounds good? What sounds plausible? What sounds persuasive? And there on Mars Hill, in Acts chapter 17, verses 21 through 31, Paul makes a rhetorically brilliant, philosophically sound, rationally tight argument for the existence of the true God. Now, now Paul starts by referring to the architecture and the altars of Athens to draw in his listeners. Paul quotes lyrics from a well-known hymn to Zeus. Then he quotes the words of a famous Stoic poet to make his point. I mean, Paul is really at the top of his game. If you read Acts 17 and Paul's message, he goes toe-to-toe with the sophists, the philosophers, and the debaters of his day, and he takes them to school. I mean, he shows them how it's done. Today, seminaries and Bible schools still study Acts chapter 17 and Paul's presentation there because it's so magnificent. It's a shining example of rhetoric, argument, persuasion, and plausibility. And the question is, as, Ma- as Paul descended Mars Hill, having made this amazing presentation, what does he have to show for it? Acts 17 closes with some mocking. Some people mocked him. A few people were interested to hear more. And just a small handful of people came to follow Paul and follow Christ. But friends, compare that, that response, to what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. When Peter concluded his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. When Paul preached in Antioch, the response recorded in Acts 13, verses 42 through 44 was, And they went out, and the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So friends, what do we notice? We notice that compared to the overwhelming response we've seen so far in the book of Acts to gospel presentations, Paul's brilliant performance on Mars Hill is really a stark contrast. And I believe that that greatly influenced Paul as he made his way to Corinth. You know, coming off of his performance at Mars Hill, where Paul clearly matched and even outpaced the performance of all of his rhetorical contemporaries, yet he saw very little response to his message, 
Friends, I think that left Paul reflective. How was he now going to approach things in Corinth? Was he going to handle himself in the same way that he just had in Athens? Matching wits, offering wisdom, plausible, persuasive, impressive? We heard read for us 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul said, I could have made the most plausible and persuasive of arguments, but that is not where the power is. The power is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, friends, if you look back at Paul's speech in Acts 17, for all of its plausible words, persuasive arguments, and brilliant rhetoric, not once in that speech does Paul mention the crucified Christ. Everything that Paul says in that speech is true, and it's good, and it's well said. But not once does Paul mention the crucified Christ. And is it a coincidence that the response to his magnificently plausible message on Mars Hill was magnificently puny? Friends, what the Corinthians needed, and what Camdenites need, and what all people need, is not just the plausible. We need the powerful. We need not just the plausible words of wisdom. We need the powerful words of the gospel. You see, the the sophists, the wise persons of Paul's day, and the so-called wise persons of our day, they're constantly spending new theories. They're digging for new insights that would make them stand out from the competition and on their quest for the new, the novel, the viral. Friends, the danger is that the goal of human wisdom is that which is plausible and persuasive, but not necessarily that which is powerful and true. Paul makes the point of saying in verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Plausible words of wisdom. Now, plausible is a really good translation of the Greek word pathos, um, which means persuasive, plausible, or enticing. Because you see the problem? Plausible words, Persuasive words, enticing words, are not necessarily true words. Friends, human wisdom then and now loves to traffic in that which is plausible or persuasive or enticing. Theories, but they're not necessarily truth. It's really not a new phenomenon. It all started way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said of the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, The problem was the devil's words were plausible. They were persuasive and they were enticing. They claimed to offer freedom and power. But the problem is his words were not true. And there was actually no power in them. The only thing that his words actually offered were slavery. Adam and Eve were taken in by that which was plausible but not powerful. Persuasive but not true. And friends, that is what was happening in the church in Corinth, and that is still what's happening in Camden and in our world today. We are being duped by human wisdom. Words like the words of the serpent, which sound plausible and persuasive, they promise so much, 
but they have no power to deliver. Friends, the so-called wisdom of this world puts forward many convincing-sounding arguments about evil and enlightenment, freedom and sexuality, identity and gender. The problem is that the so-called wisdom is all plausible, but it is not powerful. And like the serpent in the garden, their words promise freedom, but can only offer slavery. In fact, according to the so-called wisdom of the world, you are a victim. You're a victim. You're inescapably a victim of your ethnicity, because your race makes you inescapably oppressed or unforgivably an oppressor. You are inescapably a victim of your sexuality. You're a victim to your sexual appetites. You must not seek to curb or direct them. You need to fully indulge them, because they are your master. You're inescapably a victim of your gender identity. You're a victim to your fickle and untethered feelings, unbeholden to biology, anthropology, sociology, family, society, or any responsibility. Your subjective feelings of gender are God, and to whom you must submit. You're inescapably a victim of your society. Inequity means that you can never get ahead by your own work, but are inescapably a victim to forces that are beyond your control. You're inescapably a victim of your history. I mean, you're always just one old tweet, Facebook post, picture, or opinion away from cancellation for past or present offenses. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no room given that you might be repentant or might have changed. You're inescapably a victim of your own actions. Friends, so much of the so-called wisdom that this world offers is plausible and maybe even persuasive to some, but ultimately it has no power. The wisdom of this world merely leaves you as a powerless victim, unable to change, unable to be forgiven of your past, a victim of your circumstance, a victim of your society, a victim of your proclivities. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, remember, this is not how the gospel came to you. It didn't come with plausible but powerless words. Remember how the gospel came. Verses 4 and 5. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When Paul talks about a demonstration of the Spirit's power, friends, he's not merely talking about signs and wonders, healings and exorcisms. I mean, remember that in the previous verses, Paul wrote that the Jews demanded such signs and the Greeks demanded wisdom, but I, Paul, only preach Christ crucified. Now, we do find in the book of Acts and throughout Paul's letters that such signs did accompany Paul's ministry, validating the truth of his message. But when Paul talks here about the gospel coming with a demonstration of spirit and power, he's referring to the power of the changed life of those in Corinth. Paul says the wisdom of the world, for all of its rhetoric and for all of the philosophies of the philosophers, none of that had any power to change you now, did it? None of their wisdom had power that could set you free. None of their plausible theories could forgive your past or empower your future, could they? But you remember, the gospel did. The gospel wasn't just plausible words of wisdom. The gospel set you free. It wasn't the plausible words of wisdom of this world that set you free. It was the power of the gospel. Remember what you were when you first heard the gospel. I met you. You were swindlers and liars. You were prostitutes and pornographers. You were gossips and godless. You were chained by your sin and your addictions. You were slaves to your inclinations and your desires. But not one single word of the plausible, persuasive wisdom of this world gave you any power to change that, did it? 
It left you more a slave than when you began. But the power that changed you and the power that is changing you is the foolish gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. What you need and what we need and what this world needs is not plausible wisdom, but the powerful words of the gospel. For it is the power of Christ that has forgiven you and that has set you free. Friends, the greatest proof of the gospel is not plausible and persuasive words of wisdom. The greatest proof of the gospel is the power of changed lives. You can argue persuasively and intellectually. You can give the most plausible of arguments, the most airtight of proofs. But somebody might still disagree, deny, and dispute. But what people cannot argue with is the power that changes a life. The power of the gospel, the power of the crucified and risen Christ changes lives. And friends, that cannot be disputed. What we need are not plausible theories and words of wisdom. We need gospel power. Now, all of this is not to say that we shouldn't study, read, learn, debate, and, and know our stuff. Every week I listen to the Stand to Reason Apologetics podcast with Gregory Coco. Because the gospel is plausible. It is reasonable. It is persuasive. There's good evidence and solid arguments. You don't have to check your brain at the door to believe in Jesus. However, we need to remember that for as plausible as the gospel is, what changes people, what changed us, was not plausible words of wisdom, but the power of the risen Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds the church in Corinth and the church in Camden, this world is filled with plausible words and persuasive arguments. But what has changed you and what is changing you are not those plausible words but the power of the gospel. So that as Paul wrote in verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Friends, do you know this gospel power? Do you know the power of the Spirit that forgives your past and that frees you and transforms your future? Are you currently tempted by all the plausible and persuasive wisdom that's out there, so-called wisdom, the, the plausible words that tempt you to abandon the foolishness of the gospel of the crucified Christ? Friends, the wisdom of this world may sound persuasive and plausible, but only the gospel has power, power to save. So don't settle for plausible wisdom of this world. Come and receive the power of the gospel. Power to be transformed. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your gospel. That it came to us not with plausible words of wisdom, though it is plausible. But it came to us with more than that. It came to us with what we really need. A demonstration of the Spirit's power. That we are, have been changed and we are being changed. Not by wisdom but by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. And Father, I pray if there are those listening, if there are those here this morning or online who don't know that power, that, Father, you might draw them to yourself, that they might submit themselves to your power, and that they might find the freedom from their past and hope for their future that they need, that they might find freedom from the plausible words of wisdom that this world offers, and they might find the freedom and the hope that is in the power of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.